Today is our final installment of our study of Ruth and courtship, and we are finishing the section where we've completed the story of Ruth, and we're stepping out of that story, and in today's study, we're, we're talking about the kind of things you do together when you spend time together socially, and you know, this applies with you just hanging out with your friends. There are principles here that speak to if you're spending time with a friend that's of the opposite gender, to just be friends, uh, even if there are no romantic overtures to your relationship. <coughs> and a lot of the things apply specifically to the idea of spending time socially with someone in pursuit of a marriage relationship. So there's a lot of information here that's important for your Christian walk. This, em this embraces issues that you face a lot, especially in this window of time in your life, but these issues don't go away when you get married. A lot of these questions are things that stay with you and principles that we must live by in terms of our basic Christian conduct. Number one, I want to talk a little while about drugs and alcohol. The book of Luke chapter 21 and verse 34, Jesus said, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. The word that's translated carousing there, it's kind of an interesting word. I think the King James might put that as surfeiting, and you know that's just a word that we typically don't use in our modern language. But the word behind it is a term that has to do with not only the abuse of alcohol, but the sort of the aftermath of abusing drugs or alcohol. It, it kind of encompasses the lifestyle concept of somebody living the party life. And I want you to, it's a no-brainer that whether you're just out with friends or by yourself or dating or courting or whatever, it's a no-brainer. You're not supposed to get intoxicated. And that's what this passage teaches. And biblical teaching that forbids intoxication or getting drunk is not restricted to alcohol. It's a sin to get drunk with drugs too. And I say that because there are a lot of states that are legalizing marijuana, so there are some Christian young people that, oh, well, it's legal now. We can smoke a, a, a joint. No, you can't. <laughs> Booze is legal, and you're still not supposed to get drunk. It's not hard to understand that just because a government says, well, it's legal for you to use this substance, that doesn't mean that it's right for you to use that substance to become intoxicated. And that ought to really be obvious, and it introduces us to a problem in the way we approach things. If there's something that our flesh is wanting to do, sometimes we overlook obvious evidence from Scripture that steers us away from things our flesh wants, and the reason we do is because we're looking for an excuse to do what we wanted to do in the first place. And if you're looking for an excuse to use drugs or to misuse alcohol or whatever, if you're looking for that excuse, you'll turn a blind eye to obvious evidence, okay? So instead of letting that happen, let's bear down on the fact that Jesus forbid drunkenness, and drunkenness can happen with things besides alcohol. 
All right, consider what he said in Isaiah 56 and verse 1. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. That's the party life mantra. That's the theme of somebody who wants to live the reckless life. We're going to go out and hoop it up, and we're going to do these things, and tomorrow we're going to go out again and do the same thing. And and some people live acting as though, you know, that that. You never reap what you saw living that kind of life. And and the fun never ends. Well, it does. And you eventually do reap what you sow. And so I want you to really think about that. And understand, in Scripture, when he talks about uh, intoxicating drink, and there's a lot of passages where this is the case, again, that is not just restricted to the discussion of alcohol. Uh, at different times in doing studies with young people, I posed the question, when do you think the drug problem first hit the human race? And you get a variety of answers, but a lot of times those answers will be, you know, sometime within the last 20 years. There'll be a few kids that's heard enough from their parents or grandparents. They think that this, the 1960s was when the drug problem first occurred, and that's just not true. Man has had a, mankind has had a drug problem since the ancient, ancient, ancient times. Marijuana is not the only plant that will create intoxication. And 20th century Western civilization or 20th century civilization is not the human civilization that's figured out if I eat that or grind it up and drink that or bake that in my food or smoke that, it will make me intoxicated. We're not the first ones to have figured that out. Ancient Israel had a drug problem. And it went something like this. Everybody thinks because they raised grapes and squeezed the juice out of it and drank it that all they had to do was leave that grape juice sitting out a few days and bam, you had strong alcoholic wine that would get them drunk. And that is not true. The word wine comes from the same English root as the word vine. And in its most literal sense from the King James translators from their era of time, wine could mean grape juice just as easily as it could mean something with alcohol in it. So just because you see wine in the Bible, don't assume that, oh yeah, that's a bottle of strong stuff that'll make you drunk. They actually had a problem, a challenge making their wine strong enough to get them drunk or they had to drink so much of it to get drunk enough that they did things to it. Because we've got modern distilling techniques now to make it stronger that back then they didn't have. So here's what they did. To make it where they would get enough of a buzz, they took herbal dope. They took drugs and they ground it up and they put it in their wine. And the combination of the little alcohol that was in there with the intoxicating substances in those herbs would make that an intoxicating beverage. In some of these passages, especially in the Old Testament, that's warning Israel about intoxicating drink, it's talking about taking drugs and alcohol together. So the idea of a drug problem is it's not foreign to Scripture. It's not a new problem. It's been with man for thousands of years. And the Lord consistently through the ages has forbid his children to abuse these things to become intoxicated. Here's here's what I want you to think about as you approach this idea of dating. Look down the road. Look to the future to the day that Lord willing someday you'll have children and you're going to teach these children and there's going to come a moment where your kids are going to ask you what did you do 
the first time they offered you booze or the first time somebody at school handed you a doobie, what did you do? My kids asked me that. And I remember back to high school, I still vividly remember this, the day that I was with schoolmates and one of them handed me a marijuana joint. And I looked at that and I thought, someday my kids are going to ask me what I did in this moment. And I want to be able to make eye contact and not hang my head. Because there are some really good parents that would give everything they own to be able to answer that question with integrity that, hey, I said no. But they have to be honest. And I wanted to be able to be honest. And so for, for all the stupid choices I made, and I made a lot of stupid choices. If you don't ask, believe me, ask guys in my generation. Some of them know some of that. Okay. I did. But I'll tell you, when that day come for our daughters, I could look them in the eye and said, I did exactly what I'm asking you to do. I said no. And I did the same thing with the alcohol. I said no. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to raise godly children if you've made those mistakes. That's not my point. My point is it's hard enough to raise godly children as it is. Don't compound your difficulty by doing things today where you really know better. Besides the fact that it's a sin and God doesn't want you to do that. So don't do those things together or on your own or whatever. That's very important in your courtship life that you don't abuse drugs and alcohol. And it expands from that to the party life. Some people have the idea that, well, I won't abuse the substances, but I'll go to the celebrations where they do those things. Okay, let's read together 1 Peter 4, verse 2 through 4, where he said that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. That phrase, flood of dissipation, the King James says, excess of riot. I don't know if that's maybe a better or a clearer way to put it, but he's basically saying people in the world don't understand why you won't get wild with them. They just don't get it. When I told those guys no, they did not understand why. I think they do today, <laughs> but back then they just didn't get it. And you might face a lot of pressure from people in the world to do things and live the party life, and they will not get it when you say, you know what, I'm not going to go do that. That's bizarre to them. But he said, don't do it. So don't think that just because you're avoiding the abuse of drugs and alcohol that that means you're okay. You are not even supposed to go to the parties where that stuff happens. And I remember visiting with a fellow about this issue, and he's like, well, I, you know, I go to the bars, but I don't drink. And he played in a band, and he was a drummer, and he said, you know, a lot of people are always offering to buy the band members a drink, and so anytime they do, I, I, I get a soft drink, you know. And he was really proud of himself. <laughs> And we read this passage, and I talked to him about the fact, you're not even supposed to be there, much less have the opportunity to time and time again say no to alcohol. He thought he was really preaching Jesus just by not getting drunk when he went to the bars. 
this succession of terms here, drunkenness, revelries, and drinking parties, that's a cluster of words that are associated in the concepts that they encompass that deal with varying degrees. Obviously, don't get drunk, but don't even go to the revelry or the drinking party where it's happening or the party that's exclusively for that purpose. And don't participate in the idolatry that's often associated with those things. So he's not just saying, don't get drunk. He's saying, don't even go where other people are doing that. But one of these terms embraced a, a common festival in, the, in its day. Think if this sounds familiar to anything that goes on in the United States today. At a certain time of the year, these people would get together and they used drugs, they used alcohol, they played music, and they got up out, out in the streets and they marched down the streets in this procession. And they played, you know, wild music and abused drugs and abused alcohol and conducted themselves in a revelrous or a wild manner. <clears throat> That's basically Mardi Gras today. Back then, that was just a, a pagan festival. They got out and did that in honor of some pagan god or goddess. You know, there were people that would go to those things with no thought of, you know, being a pagan or no, maybe not even a thought of, of abusing the substances. And the Lord is telling them through Peter's words here, don't even go to that place. So if you're going to date, you've got better options than to go clubbing or going to raves. Okay? I was talking to uh, uh, a couple of young people one time about they just like to go to raves, and these were Christian people. And I, I think most of you probably know what I mean when I talk about raves. I don't know how much they use that term now. This was a few years back. But it's basically a wild party where, you know, people go and the, and, and the stated front purpose is we're going to go and listen to music and dance together. But what's really happening is people are sneaking drugs in and sneaking alcohol in, and you've got a lot of underage substance abuse. Okay? Well, there is no age in the mind of God where it's right to abuse substances. Uh, and my words to them was, based on 1 Peter chapter 4, you're not even supposed to be there. So don't think it's okay to go to those places, even if you don't participate in some of the extreme sinful behavior. <coughs> Romans 13, verse 12 through 14, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, there's those party terms, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Here in warning about the party life and things associated with it, he adds to it, make no provisions for the flesh. I remember watching a documentary one time about the clubbing life and these clubs, you know, where people would go supposedly to just make friends and listen to music and dance, okay? That's the only reason we're going. And they were talking to this fellow about this business he had hosting those things. And he said, my industry would not exist if young people did not come to find partners that they could fornicate with. Nobody would come if it wasn't for that. And that also drove the drug and alcohol industry because the drug and the alcohol abuse was, was so to speak, a way to facilitate making it easier to find someone that would fornicate. 
So people did not go just to have a good time. They went for the purpose of sin. That's why that industry existed. And I, I didn't lift out one lone guy as this one peculiar example. That was the industry norm. I talked to guys that used to own bars. Yep. If it wasn't for, you know, finding partners, my people wouldn't have. They'd buy booze and go, go home to drink. You don't need to be going to those kind of places with your friends or in your courtship. And that leads us to the idea of, of course, in your courtship, you need to remain morally and ethically pure. Mark 7, verse 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Fornication and lewdness are the, the items on that list that meet the purpose at hand. He said these things come from within because the heart is filled with these things. That's why people do these things. And what did he say they do? They defile a man. I remember a guy in high school that was bragging about the fact that he was going to maintain his virginity through the dating process. And he, he grinned and he said, I'm, I'm not going to go all the way, but I'm going to do everything but go all the way. I know I'm being plain. Maybe it makes you uncomfortable, but we're going to talk about it. What he didn't understand was all those other things he viewed as, well, it's not that bad because at least I'm not fornicating. He was committing lewdness. And the word that's translated lewdness here encompasses a lot of different kinds of behavior that include doing things that are sexual in nature that fall short of the full-on act of fornication. And Jesus said these things defile a man. So that calls upon us to be careful about what you do and how you treat each other and, you know, whether or not you get too frisky and too friendly with one another. You need to think about those things. And you might back up and say, well, you know, at least we're not fornicating. Well, that doesn't mean you're not necessarily sinning in the sight of the Lord. One of these days, your kids may ask, think today about the, the answer you want to give and the ability to look them in the eye. That's tough when you think about it like that. I want to share with, with you fellows something that I heard an elder in the church say one time that it, it included how he was encouraging this man to have his girlfriend or his wife dress in public and present herself and how they acted toward each other and a full scope of things related to fornication and lewdness. A husband is supposed to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. Okay, if you're familiar with Ephesians 5, you know this. When you turn to Ephesians 5, in that section you'll read where it talks about Christ wanting to present the, his bride as being holy and spotless and blameless. And so based on that, this elder encouraged this young man, you need to want to present this lady that you're attached to, you need to want to present her as being holy and without spot and without blemish. So boys, you think about that. As you think about what you ask of your girlfriend or how you treat your girlfriend, 
is what you do when you're alone together. When it comes time to to go to the altar and get married, you want to be Christ-like in your love for her and present her as holy. You've conducted yourself with each other in a way that's without spot and without blame. And that doesn't just include how you act towards her, but that includes how you encourage her to dress and to act and to present herself to others. These are important things. Look at, associated with the idea of lewdness and fornication, look at the importance of maintaining proper language and proper talk between one another. The immoral woman in Proverbs 7 and 21 uses language as part of her tools of enticement. It says, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. She didn't just use flaunting of her physical charms to lure this man into sin. She used illicit or ungodly words. So be careful even how you talk to each other because the closer you get in a relationship and the more intimate you feel and the more certain you feel that we're going to get married someday, the easier it is for you to think, you know, to kind of be careless about the way you talk to each other, about your attractiveness to one another. I understand that. But you've got to be careful because if that talk turns towards lewdness, that be can become a sinful enticement. In Luke 6 and verse 45, Jesus said, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. If your heart is filled with conviction that fornication and lewdness are a sin, then that will reflect in the things you will and won't say to your girlfriend or boyfriend. Okay? So think about that. Think about building your conviction on those things in your heart. Consider what he said in Colossians 3 and verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So this passage forbids or prohibits us to speak about vulgar or vile things. Ephesians 5 and 4 is very similar. In a list of things that are forbidden, he adds neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. So here's a list of things that he says are not fitting for a Christian. And he goes through kind of degrees of different concepts. Filthiness is just general vulgar conduct. Foolish talking is specifically filthy language. Coarse jesting, that's dirty jokes. And he says these things are not fitting. What does he cast as the opposite? There's kind of a parallelism here if you'll think about it. What's the back side of that parallelism? What is appropriate? Giving of thanks. So think about whatever you say to each other that you could with a clear conscience follow those words with a prayer. God, I'm thankful, you know, that we have this time together. God, I'm thankful we had this conversation where we said these things to each other. Uh, that's kind of tough challenge there. That's a strong standard, but that's the standard he puts out in Ephesians 5. Instead of a, a heart and a mouth, that entertains these vulgar things, you've got a heart and you've got a mouth that thinks and acts prayerfully.
okay? And if you'll conduct yourself in that way in your romantic relationships, things will go a lot better. This may sound kind of goofy to you. I, re I really don't know. Y'all seem like a pretty good batch of kids, so maybe you'll grab hold of this. I hope you do. When you date, pray together. Oh, that's weird. Nobody does that. If I get into that too much, it'll end the relationship. Then that relationship needs to end. Pray together. Study together. We're talking about all these things to, you know, to avoid and all these places to not go and these things to not do. I don't want to leave it at just the don't do this, but think about the things you can put in its place. Things like what you're doing together this week. What's wrong with doing things like this together? Well, they have these kind of meetings during the summer, you know. The rest of the year, they don't, you know, everybody's back to work and back to school, so they don't do this. So it's impossible to go to the nursing home any other day of the year but during a, a youth work? Get your girlfriend, fellas, and y'all go visit the hospitals together. Go visit the old folks home together. Go visit the elderly and the shut-in at church together. Go do a Bible study with friends together. Oh, I know, that's what the nerds do. That's also what children of God do. What are you? When we grow up, we really don't care what people think the nerds do. We read in 1 Peter where he said, the world is going to think you're nuts that you don't go do these things. And I'll just tell you, you're better off if you're living a life that the world thinks is crazy because what matters on Judgment Day is what God thinks. Build your relationship around mutually serving God. Find good things to do together for service of the church and your fellow man. And if that is where your heart is, and it will be if that's where you put your treasures, Jesus promised that, if that's where your heart is, then that'll be a greater joy to you than doing a lot of these foolish things that frankly are quite destructive in their nature. In relationship to avoiding fornication, think about indiscretion. Think about the importance of presenting yourself and conducting yourself in a way that is discreet. Proverbs 11 and 22 says, as a ring of gold and a swine snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. The discretion there is that sense of modesty to properly cover herself. And there are some females out there who don't have that sense of discretion. I, and it's, it's all over town. It's on the billboards. It's on TV. It, it's everywhere. And, you know, they, there might be a fellow that's, that's really handsome that's presenting himself in a way that's indiscreet, or there might be a female that, you know, is very attractive that's presenting herself as indiscreet. And what does the Lord say? Jewel in a pig's snout. That's a pretty strong picture. Jewel in a swine snout. When you see it, say those words in your mind. Hey, don't necessarily say that to her <laughs> or him. But say those words in your heart. Because our flesh is not wired to look at it as a jewel in a swine's snout. Our flesh is wired to look at it in a way that doesn't honor God. So we've got to have godly meditation to adjust the way we think about those things. And that means remembering what the Lord sees when he sees that jewel in a swine's snout. 
Remember that immoral woman of Proverbs 7 and verse 10. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a, cra uh, a crafty heart. This woman was dressed in a way that it was readily recognizable that she was for rent. That she was a professional fornicator. Think about the way you dress and not presenting yourself in a way that makes someone wonder, is she for sale or is she for free? Because some females dress in a way that says, this isn't going to cost you anything. And that's a disgrace when you see children of God act that way. I understand. There are a lot of different ideas and views and judgments on you know where the line is about proper modest attire. I understand that. Okay? But have some idea of some standards with some thought of does this, you know, make this person look like a prostitute? For the love of all that's decent, let's, let's have that conversation in our homes. Girls, go and ask your dads. Dad, is this really, really modest? Does this really project the idea of godliness? Take some responsibility there. He's responsible. I know that. But this is not so much a meeting for a room full of dads. If it was that meeting, I'd be talking about the other perspective. Fellas, challenge your girlfriends. Be careful. Honor her parents' rules, but challenge her. Keep this standard before her rather than just getting all googly-eyed <laughs> just because that looks pleasant to you. Do you really want other fellows looking at your girlfriend and thinking that she's easy? Is that really what you want? Well, that may gratify your ego. It might, you know, add to the idea that you've got this trophy girlfriend and you must really be something else to be able to reel a gal like that into the boat. But what is that ego being fed? What's going to happen to that ego when other, some other fella comes along and takes the bait? <laughs> You remember what stink bait does? It catches bottom feeders. What's going to happen when someone takes the bait and you lose? Now where's that ego? Pride goes before fall. Look at what he said in Titus 2 and verse 5, talking about what the older women should teach the younger women. He said, teach them to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That word chaste, that just carries the idea of modesty of modesty in dress, modesty in conduct. And I, I hear, you know, females in the church, I hear this all too often. Well, fine then, I guess I just have to dress in a big cardboard box. It's not a choice of I either got to dress like a prostitute or I have to wear a giant cardboard box. It's not that two opposite extremes. And those words are frankly an act of rebellion against God's standard for young Christian women, or old Christian women for that matter, to present yourself in a way that's chaste and godly. And men do not escape this directive. First Timothy 5 and verse 2, Paul said to Timothy, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. 
He's talking about a lot of different things here that relate to Timothy's work. And in the larger context here, it relates to his daily conduct. There's a large package of things under consideration here. And in an overarching governing of these things, Paul told Timothy, keep yourself pure. And the word that's translated pure there is the same word that's translated chaste for the ladies in Titus 2 and verse 5. So, fellas, we're obligated to... to do that too. We're obligated to present ourselves in a way that's that's chaste and morally honorable. So, you know, you might think, well, but, you know, women aren't as visual and so it's not as important how the guys dress. Well, maybe there's some truth to that, but it's still important. And it's not that there's no visual element at all to the things that challenge them. Furthermore, it's not just about the clothes that you will or won't wear, but it's about how you act and how you carry yourself. So think about these things and presenting yourself in a way that's pure, in a way that's chaste, in a way that's modest. You don't want to pave the road that heads down towards lewdness and fornication. Don't create those kind of challenges for yourself. So I want to think about some things we can observe from what we've been thinking. Yeah, it's ugly. Think of God's picture of indiscretion. You know what that picture is? That's pornography. No, for for those listening to the audio, that's not a lewd picture up there. That's a picture of a pig with a jewel in its nose. But that's God's perception of a man or a woman being presented in a way that's not chaste or that's lewd or that's immodest. Wherever that line is, whatever that precise standard should be, that's God's picture of it. Okay? What does it mean to dress like a prostitute? I mean, he talked about that in Proverbs 7, that a moral woman was dressed like a prostitute. What does that mean? Well, that probably looked different 1,000 B.C. than it looks today. So today, what does it look like to dress like a prostitute? Well, I'm not advocating that you go to the the wrong side of town, but maybe there's a way you can kind of consider this the next time you go to an area-wide meeting or a large church function, and ask yourself what you see. But before you get there and do that, go to the mirror and ask yourself what you see. What does it mean to present yourself in a way that's chaste? On the one hand, you've got the person presenting themselves as being for sale. On the other hand, you've got the person that's presenting themselves in a way that says, I'm trying to live a holy life. What's the difference between those two? You know, I could give you my opinions and my think-sos and all of that and a dollar quarter will buy you a cup of coffee. What really matters, is it but 50 now? What really matters is honoring the standard that God has put in our minds. And if you put thought and work into this, we may not reach the same judgments in every area, but the church will look better and we will do a better job. I know it draws a lot of attention to feed your ego if you dress in a way that's immodest. I know that. 
And I know that it feeds your ego if your love interest presents themselves in a way that's immodest. I understand that. But are you more interested in your ego or her honor, fellas? That'll make you take a trip to the wardrobe and rethink how much that covers. What interests you more, honoring the side of God or momentarily feeding the ego? Think about those values as you think about the way you present yourself and the way you conduct yourself and where you go and what you will and won't do when you're dating. I hope you've been edified by the things that we've studied together. I hope that you will let these things sink deep in your ears and consider prayerfully how the Lord would, would have you to conduct yourself. I want you to know it's not just about looking good and holy to the eyes of men. Ultimately, our goal is to be holy in the sight of God, and the only way to achieve that is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you've not had that precious blood applied to your soul's sins today, you need that. We'd love to assist you in seeing that through and helping you obey the gospel now if that is your wish. Or if as a Christian you need the church to pray for you to assist you, we'd love to assist you in that. If we can help you in either way, please come while we stand and sing.